I'm praying now, Lord, that in the Word we would see the happy path and we would walk it. And I'm asking now, Lord, that you would anoint our hearts, our minds, my lips, and that there would be a journey to fruitfulness and freedom and fragrance in Christ. In his name I pray, amen. The Lord has been very good to all of us. But there is a narrow path that Jesus describes. And following that narrow path, even though we deny ourselves in the process and say no to certain things, that's the protection of our happiness. It's for our children. It's for our parents and grandparents. It's for all of us, whether we're married, have children, or we're children even still. We were, and I just want to testify how good the Lord is. You know, we loaded up our little car, a Toyota Prius, and we put our tent in there. We made a journey to Pagosa Springs where I spoke three times, and then I was interviewed for a video that's being produced by Noah's Love Ministries, which is Wayne Blakely, whom you formerly know as being a part of Coming Out Ministries. They're doing similar ministries, but he now has his own ministry. And on Sunday morning in Pagosa Springs three weekends ago, I was sitting in front of an amazing array of cameras, a traveling film studio, and he was recording a film that he hopes to have out within the next year relating to conversion therapy, really relating to conversion but the dynamics of conversion therapy, which were used with electric shock and cold water submersion, etc., to help change the course of someone that was involved in the homosexual lifestyle, those things were abandoned by the psychological sciences decades ago. But the new threat in our modern society is any dialogue that suggests that somebody could or should not live that way. And so now the words conversion therapy are really aimed more at the concept of conversion and saying anything that would make anybody feel bad about how they're living. Well, this morning we're going to see that occasionally God steps in and he confronts things we're doing. He even uses the words against you. I have this against you. We went on from there to Mesa Verde, then to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, then to my kid's house in Southern California, then up to Sequoia National Park, and then to Yosemite, then on to Weimar, where we spent the weekend, had the privilege of worshiping in Granite Bay Church, which is where Pastor Doug Batchelor is the leader, the preacher. You know, on the way, I learned something quite wonderful, is that when campsites open up in Yosemite back in March, they're gone within five minutes online. <laughs> But the Lord in his goodness allowed me to spend a couple nights there, actually inside the park, camping out of our little Prius in a tent. On the way up to see Vernal Falls, there were some people in front of us that were quite interested in something that was going on. You see, a rattlesnake had just crossed the path. And the snake was along the trail. Now, you couldn't see it because it crawled down in some rocks, but I got my camera out on my phone, and I looked down into the rocks, and I could see it moving. It came out the other side of the rocks. I got my camera out. It went into that S-shaped pose, so I thought I might be a little close. And I backed up and took a little video. All the rest of the way up to Vernal Falls, nobody really wanted to sit down on the rocks along the side of the trail. And I couldn't help but think of all those people passing up and down the most traveled trail in America. How many of them walked within feet of this about three and a half foot long venomous snake and didn't even know it was there? Now, when Jesus says the path is narrow, 
he's suggesting that we are tentative to staying on the path. And this morning, I'd like to suggest to you that the devil would like to suggest the exact opposite. And the mantra of our 21st century postmodern world, which is you can find the God you need and you can go the way you need to go and nobody should make you feel bad about it, has never been and never w- will never be the path of happiness. This morning I've entitled my message, Canceling Christ. I've been alarmed. I woke up Thursday morning, very early in the morning, with a lot of different Bible thoughts running through my head. Those thoughts and those scriptures, I think, are exceptionally important to the moment in which we're living, and I'm going to take you on a survey and dig in just a little bit in a few places. Our society used to be based on the idea of finding the best idea. It used to be based on the logical assumption in an age of reason that reason, and for Christians, we understood spiritual reasoning out of the word. We could find the truth. We believed, as Jesus said, the truth could set you free. I want you to understand that the most dangerous things that have ever existed in the universe are ideas. It was a dangerous thing for Satan to think to himself he could take over and do a better job than God. But that's what he thought. God allowed him to have some access to the unfallen beings in the Garden of Eden. He warned them, but he didn't stop them from having access to the ideas. We know the story. Truth does matter. We're living at the end of a 6,000-year journey that's pretty dark. And now we find ourselves in a place where our society, with the withdrawing of the Holy Spirit, is less open to the pursuits of truth that made this a great nation and a beacon of light to the world. And even our church is struggling. But probably more important today is that maybe some of us are struggling. So I've entitled this message, Canceling Christ, because no matter what the challenges of the nation are, or the church, There's not a one of us who needs to miss out on heaven no matter how much circumstances change around us because Jesus can see his people all the way home. But we can lose our ability to listen. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2 we begin a series of seven dialogues, actually seven communications to seven different churches, which would represent seven different periods of time, even though they were actual literal churches in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. What I want you to see is how God relates to people. We'll start with chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one, capital O, who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. These are all affirmations. When we have difficult dialogues with other people, we would do well to mirror the methods of God. God affirms the ones he's talking to in legitimate ways. But there is a problem, and he is going to talk about it. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. 
Five of these churches are rebuked, all of them are exhorted, and all of them are loved dearly by God. But he is against them in that they have done much good, but their hearts have wandered. And he addresses it. Verse 5, Therefore remember from where you've fallen and repent, do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of your place unless you repent. This is not a threat. This is a statement of fact. It's a functional relationship. God is not trying to manipulate them into doing what he wants. He could have set that up as a programmable human being, which he did not do. Instead, he lays out choices and he explains his plan. Verse 6, he ends with some affirmation. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were a lawless group of so-called Christians. Verse 7 is where I want you to see a commonality in all seven messages to the churches. Listen to this phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in the body of Christ... God has made us all uniquely different to contribute to understanding beautiful fellowship, meaningful service, and missionary work. There's a value in the body of all the different things. I would lay in my tent at night, and I could always tell it was morning not because I woke up, because sometimes I was sleeping on some of those flimsy little mats. But I could always tell it was morning because I could hear the birds singing. When it comes to having a spiritual ear, it doesn't and wouldn't do much good if this piece of cartilage covered in skin did not have a nerve running to a central nervous system. But it appears that in the Christian experience, there is an ability to be very much involved in religious things, but not be able to hear the voice of the Master. It appears that Jesus knew that the key to understanding was a willingness to obey the key to listening and hearing. And if I was a betting man thinking about those places in Nevada where I drove by casinos, etc. I would bet that there's some people here listening today and online and in the future for whom total surrender to Jesus is yet to be a fact in their life. And there are some things they will hear from their parents or their spouse or their pastor or teacher or friend, and it just won't make it from the cartilage to the system that governs action. I'm here on God's behalf this morning to talk to his church. It's a sermon, so I'm on his behalf talking to everybody, but he makes it personal, not me. Do you have an ear to hear? Jesus didn't always have an audience with an ear to hear. You go through all seven of these churches all the way down to Laodicea and he ends every message with the same thing. If you want to hear what I'm saying, if anyone has an ear to hear. Now, I'm here to suggest to you this morning that the willingness to hear is tied to a variety of circumstances. For some people, they are so absolutely insecure because they have never understood the beauty of their person in the family and economy of God, that anything you say to them is taking something away from them, and they're already feeling empty to start with, so any criticism is absolutely ruled out right from the very beginning. You know, I have four kids. I'm trying to think of the phrase one of them would use on me. You know, my kids related different to me in their young adult years, post-conversion and pre-conversion. 
Boy, I wish it would come to me. I'll get close. When I would get in a serious dialogue with one of my younger adult adolescent children, they would say to me, you're just throwing me around. The idea was that I was just verbally beating him up. I guess I gave away which of the kids at least. It's not my daughter, all right? <laughs> After he was converted, there was an amazing humility to have a discussion. And I wasn't his enemy, I was his friend. If you don't have an ear, in other words, if your heart is still uncircumcised, if you're a good Seventh-day Adventist sitting in church this morning listening to a sermon, maybe this one, or you're listening to this one later on, but your mom and dad can't talk to you, or your husband can't talk to you, or your wife can't talk to you, you might need to say, Jesus, I want you to perform a spiritual operation, and I want you to show me that there's so much more to me than what's wrong with me so that you could actually say that you have this against me, but it'd be against the backdrop of the cross, and I would know how loved I am, and in spite of what's wrong with me, you see through the eyes of what's right with me and what can be even more right with me. There are some people who they have not given Jesus freedom to show them how much he loves them because they've still chosen to love the world, love themselves. It consequentially leaves you very empty, and nobody can tell you anything's wrong because the Holy Spirit's constantly talking to you. At least you're trying to shut him out. If you're that kind of person, listen to me this morning. I'm appealing to you. Do you have an ear to hear? There are other people with the same problem on the other end of the spectrum. They're smart. They're rich. They're successful. They're well-linked. They might be smarter than most people even. They're proud. But they're not going to listen either. Same root problem manifested with a different set of circumstances. You should listen to them, but they should never have to take that from you. There are people who have slowly drifted off course, who hold positions of power. It's embarrassing to get off course and hold a position of power and to need to change. Maybe to say you're sorry, maybe to say you made a mistake. But I want to tell you a secret. From the earliest days of my life, when I gave my heart to Jesus and I gave it all so he could, he could have access to every element of it, eating, thinking, dressing, entertaining, working, placement in society, placement in America, placement in God's cause, whatever, 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 when there's nothing between you and God, your joy, even in the midst of struggles and troubles, knows no bounds. This is why Paul could be with Silas in the Philippian jail, beaten and bruised and bleeding and stuck in the stocks, and they're singing that night to the chagrin of everybody else who's listening. They're not cursing them out. There's a reason. There's something beautifully different about these people. Our modern society has so woven into the fabric of our being so much self-focus. And people aren't really happy. They've never known the joy of Christ. And there are times when I've had to say to a parishioner, a family member, a friend, I'm sorry. But with nothing between you and Christ, you live the joy of the apostles. And that's the joy I want you to have. Now, along the way, even the apostles made mistakes. Do you have an ear to hear? There are some people who won't listen because there's too much embarrassment associated with change. Do you know how many times they tried to cancel Jesus? When you have honest hearts and an honest society... You can have honest discussions. 
If you're in a marriage with a person who doesn't have an ear to hear and they're dishonest, you'll never solve a problem. But if you're in a marriage with somebody who has an honest heart, the value of Christianity is inestimable. Married to a Christian spouse, you get the highest joys of love. Married to a dishonest person, you get the repeating recycle of frustration. Now, everybody's growing. But the one thing that makes the big difference about how well you grow, how fast you grow, how high you grow, is whether or not you have an ear to hear. So this morning, I'm appealing to you. Could God get through if he was present himself talking? He said he's with us. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. How many times did they try to cancel Jesus? Luke chapter 4 is one of the first. I'm not suggesting I've captured them all, and I'm not suggesting I've got them all in chronological order, but I'll be close enough to make the point. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has gone home. It's an amazing day. The Bible tells us in verse 32 of chapter 4, they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. This is how Jesus spoke. The reason he spoke with authority is that he lived a life of integrity through the Spirit. But when we look at the service in Nazareth, he's invited to preach. The problem is he touches on subject matter that is offensive to the congregation. Verse 24, truly I say unto you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet God did not send Elijah to any of them. That's my paraphrase. But only to Zarephath, which, by the way, is not an Israeli province. In the land of Sidon, which is pretty close to where Jezebel had her origins, to a woman who was a widow. So when God needed to minister to his prophet, he went outside the prophetic covenant, at least the identifiable lineage of Abraham. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, Jesus is showing the group at Nazareth that they do not have an ear to hear that there is a serious course recorrection that's needed in their hearts and lives. And the response is heartfelt and unified. Verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Have you ever sat in this place and been angry about something somebody said? Have you ever brought somebody to this house who was angry about something that somebody said? I want you to hear what I'm saying. There is a divine prophetic role that is to shape the Adventist experience, and it's not always going to please the listeners. On this day, they probably gave a little less hospitable response than they did to other guest speakers because they got up. I don't know if a deacon got him by the arm first, but it didn't take long till they all had him, and they were headed towards the cliff with intentions to murder. They drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. That's one way of canceling Christ. We won't have that preacher in the pulpit anymore, will we? This is just the beginning of the evidence of an unconverted heart where the heart has not yet been renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is in church again, another unpleasant Sabbath experience. I'm looking forward to a far better one. I don't imagine being escorted out of here and thrown down the sewer or something like that. In Matthew chapter 12, we have another Sabbath experience. Verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went to their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? They're goading Jesus into doing something they can criticize him for. Imagine worshiping in that kind of place. If you're in a place today listening to this message where there is an accusing mentality 
and an invitation so that somebody can feel better about themselves by critiquing you. I feel sorry for you, but no, Jesus has been there as well, and he can transform it. Verse 11, he said to them, what man is there among you as ten sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? So they wanted to know if it was lawful to heal because that's work, but Jesus turned it around and said, is it lawful to do good? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And I can see them all crowded around and they're expecting him to pull his sleeve back and show them this shriveled up, gnarly piece of tendon and decayed, atrophied muscle. And instead, he pulls the sleeve back and he stretches out his hand and it's pink and strong and supple and he probably reaches out to hug Jesus. The result was not a surprise to God. Then he said, but the Pharisees went out, verse 13, and they spied against him as how they might destroy him. That's canceled Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we have a man that's been sick for 38 years. He says to Jesus, I don't have anybody to help me into the water. And Jesus tells him to take up his mat and walk. When he says this, the man responds. If we look at verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, Behold, you become well, don't sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that made him well, and for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on Sabbath. It appears to be a reoccurring theme. But he said to them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Turn over to John chapter 7. I don't have to make this stuff up. It's just all through the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. Look what happens. Jesus heals a man born blind. But even his own parents will not acknowledge that he's their son. In John chapter 7, verse 12 to 13, it says, there was so much grumbling among the crowds. Actually, well, wait, that's John 9. So there's so much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for what? Fear of the Jews. So when we get to subject matter that is not discussable, we ought to ask ourselves Why? So the word on the street in Jerusalem and Judea and Capernaum and all these other places, don't talk about Jesus. He's persona non grata. Go down to verse 20. Jesus is talking to the crowds, and something unfortunate happens. The crowd answered, because he says, why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Now, this is a very unpleasant experience for a leader you know, as a boy, I can remember being chased home from public school by a group. You know, I was being bullied. That's very unfair. When you're speaking to a whole group and you sense they're turning against you, it's a very unpleasant experience. Now, in the audience were Pharisees. Turn over to verse 32 of the same chapter. And they believe this is their chance to capitalize on taking Jesus because the group is against him. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. This is the moment. They're going to get him. Other times they won't do anything, but now's their time because the group is with him. Now, if we go down to the end of the chapter, we have this interesting dialogue that's going on. Some of the people, verse 40, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is going to come from, not going to come from Galilee. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village of David? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The real problem is, is that while all this discussion is going on, 
those officers sent to seize Jesus come back. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees, and there's something wrong. There's no Jesus. And they said to him, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them saying, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in them, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Now what they don't know is that there's a man in their midst who was too embarrassed to acknowledge Jesus and he came at night across the Kidron Valley and he met with Jesus. And this man, the Spirit is moving on his heart. He does know the law and he decides to stick his head up out of the foxhole where he could be safe. Just let these poor temple soldiers be run roughshod with the verbiage of the Pharisees, but he doesn't do that. Nicodemus, verse 50, who came to him before being one of them, said to them, it's as if he hits the bullseye and he takes all of the wind out of their sails. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see, no prophet arises out of Galilee. But the net result was that everybody went to their home. What I want you to sense is that when a group loses the ability to have honest dialogue, they use dark methods and means. Go over to John chapter 8, the most fierce conversation in all of the Bible between Jesus and his church. They come down to the end of it. I will not take the time to look at it overly, but in the midst of it all, they're called liars, sons of the devil. It says in verse 59, at the end of this conversation, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but he himself went out of the temple. That would cancel Christ, stone him. Look, if you would, in John chapter 9. In verse 22, we're at the end of the story of the man born blind. His parents, verse 22, would not acknowledge his identity. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So, an environment has been created where you can't talk about Jesus and you can't confess Jesus or you'll be excommunicated. And if you're from the seed of Abraham, it's quite a privilege in quite a tight-knit little community and to be excised out of it, well, we know how that works. Just look at, just look at uh, Zacchaeus. So if you create an environment where you threaten and intimidate or you physically accost, you can cancel Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we have another story. Jesus mentions in verse 16, he has other sheep of this fold, other than this fold. He asserts his deity. And then when we look at John chapter 10, verse 31, it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you stoning me? Not for a good work. Let's go over to Matthew 21. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable. Doesn't seem like it would be worthy of death. In Matthew 21, he tells a story of about a man who owns a vineyard. It's time for the rent to be paid. He sends a servant, they beat him up. He sends another, they beat him up. Finally, they kill some people, and then they kill the son. Verse 42, Jesus brings it home. Matthew 21. Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it will be given to a people producing the fruits. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, they understood he was speaking about them. 
When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Well, they weren't seizing him to give him a big pat on the back, were they? Turn back to John chapter 11. We're coming to the end of Jesus' life. In John chapter 11, we have Jesus on the backside of raising Lazarus. The chief priest, verse 47 of John 11, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you don't know anything, nor do you take into account that it's expedient that one man may die. If we had any doubt about their intentions, Caiaphas, the high priest, will make it clear and let the whole nation not perish. I won't take the time to look at some others, although I'm going to bring them to your attention. In Mark chapter 11... Jesus cleanses the temple for a second time. They hate him for it. In John chapter 12, after the raising of Lazarus, there's a triumphal entry, and they don't know what to do because the crowd has turned towards him. But I do want you to look at John chapter 18 because most of us don't hate the truth, I don't think. And most of us probably do want to listen but there was somebody who canceled Jesus, who had no ill will towards Jesus. In John chapter 18, Jesus is engaging Pilate. And there's all kinds of conversation about truth and about him being a king. In verse 35, Pilate answered and said, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And then we have a key in verse 37. The key that might open our ears. Therefore Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Pay attention, folks, because this last little phrase means an awful lot. Everyone who is of the, what's the word? The truth. Here's my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, I'm not quite done with this. I heard somebody make a statement that just appalled me. They were discussing two physicians. One physician or group of physicians were Seventh-day Adventists. The other physician was not. And I'm not telling you the names of these people, so I can feel free to share the details as they were shared with me. And one physician purportedly said, well, what does that person know because they are still eating meat? Now, I want you to think about this. Number one, I do think as we come to the end, we ought to look to forego the flesh foods. Spirit of prophecy in the Bible are clear. Typologically, Daniel is a type of those who will see Jesus coming, and he was eating minus flesh. But on the day they crucified Jesus, who was more true, Caiaphas or Pilate? Caiaphas had arranged a kangaroo court to destroy an innocent man. But he was a good seventh-day, I mean Jew. And he was in church every Sabbath and he held a high position. I cannot tell you how astounded I was that somebody would suggest that the trueness of a person was related to the habits of the person. Now, of course, as you learn truth, your habits should reflect them. But would it be possible that this physician who was not a Seventh-day Adventist and not 
yet privy to the biblical stories and the apocalyptic dynamic of clear thinking evidenced in the life of Daniel? Is it possible that he was more true to the truth he already knew than the person who was certainly beyond the shadow of a doubt a vegetarian and maybe even a vegan, but not true? Do you know why Jesus said, I have other sheep other than this fold? Because you can be in the fold and be untrue, and you can be out of the fold and be true to what you know. You want to have an ear to hear? You have to be a person of truth. Truth hits the target every time. Spurgeon would say, when somebody walks out of my church and says, I will never listen to that man again, he will say it's because the Holy Spirit took an arrow and shot it straight into their heart. Truth is a function of God, and the ability to hear it is a function of the trueness or the desire for truth that's in our heart. Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What I want you to see about Pilate is that he was every bit as much of canceling Jesus as everybody else, but his motives were different. It's clear in verse 12 of the next chapter, it says, As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. They, they found a way to get him. You can cancel Jesus because, because of your pride, your insecurity, you can cancel Jesus also because if you were to stand up for him, it would cost you something. Now, do you really think when we come down to the mark of the beast and the Sunday laws that there aren't still going to be plenty of people who have good jobs with good paychecks and good insurance benefits who will come up to that line and they will not identify as followers of Jesus because it would cost them. There's two groups of people that will cancel Christ. One is a group that has dis discovered self at the center of their religious world, and it's not sanctified any more than the, the veterans organization or the dog racing club or the bike cycling club. It's all about them. There is another group that can actually hear the pricking voice of conscience, and they want to do what's right, but the devil gets them over a barrel of self-interest, and self-interest is enough to say, well, I guess you're going to have to go to the cross, aren't you? I want to I, I make sure you understand, when Peter and John were thrown in jail, because, you know, they did cancel Jesus eventually. At least they thought they did. But you can't cancel truth. When he was resurrected, and after 40 days, those last 10 days, the Holy Spirit fell. Peter and John were preaching in the temple. They were arrested. They were thrown in jail. At night, an angel let them out, and the angel said, go back to the temple and do the same thing you got in trouble for. The council is met, and they said, go get those guys out of jail. Oh, there's nobody there. Oh, we got word. They're back in the temple doing what you told them not to do. They bring them in and they threaten them, they intimidate them, and the apostles say back to them, you know what? We figured out where the authority lies, and you're going to have to decide whether we obey men or we obey God, and that's the decision everybody gets to make. Glory, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, for protecting my power to be free and not be a slave to the devil. This is the glorious privilege of every human being. And it's the church's job to live it and model it and tell it. Instead, some for pride and some for animus and some out of insecurity and some for simple self-interest will abandon the truth and refuse to hear it. When you cancel a person because you don't want to discuss an idea, 
You are walking on dark ground. When you cannot endure the light shining in the crevices of your thinking, you are walking down the broad way. But glory, hallelujah, there was a man who lived like this more than any other man. He made the Pharisees look like kindergarten children. His name was Saul, and he'd throw women and children in jail, and he watched some of them die. He had watched one man die. He couldn't get out of his head. His name was Stephen. He probably presented the case against Stephen and said, my job's over. I'll hold your coats. Take care of the rest. And every night when he went to bed, the beauty of Stephen's face looking into the face of Jesus was etched on his mind. And finally, one day on a road to more dastardly deeds in the city of Damascus, God comes down and knocks him off his horse. Now, it wasn't an uncontrolled, unloving knock, but he moved him right off his steed and put him down on the ground, and he said, enough of your death-destroying work against my people. It's hard for you to keep ignoring me. God's keeping a record of everything he said to everybody. It's not going to be, it's not going to, we don't need a thousand years to see God was right and the people that weren't in the new kingdom weren't there. Every single time the Holy Spirit spoke, it's going to be written down. You're not going to have to go through more than a day, maybe a day or two every year to see it was the same thing over and over again. This person just evidenced they were not a person of truth, so they weren't going to listen. But Saul was more of a person of truth than he appeared to be. For three days, he's there on a street called Straight in the home of one named Ananias. When God said to him, Ananias, I want you to go pray for this person, that was a moment of truth. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard some pretty bad things about him. And what does God say? Yeah, you're right. You don't have to go. I'll find somebody else. No. Go, he says. Friends, your world is changing around you. The polarization in our society is a function of the absence of the Holy Spirit and the absence of the presence of truth in our society. It shouldn't encourage you. If you're really into one side or the other, you shouldn't be encouraged because the devil's going to use either side and probably both at the same time to take care of the people of truth. And the devil only has one goal. He wants to silence the church of Christ. He wants to cancel me and you. You know what the good news is? Can't be done. I want to leave you with this amazing message. Hold the beginning of your confidence firm unto the end. The light of God's truth is not to be dimmed. It is to shine amidst the darkness of error that enshrouds our world, so it should be shining brighter now than ever. The Word of God is to be open to those in the high places of the earth as well as to those in the more lowly. The church of Christ is God's agency for the proclamation of truth. She's empowered by Him to do a special work, and if she's loyal to God and obedient to His commandments, there will dwell within her the excellence of divine power. If she will honor the Lord God of Israel, there will be no power that can stand against her. And if she'll be true to her allegiance, the forces of the enemy will be no more able to overpower her than is the chaff to resist the whirlwind. Friends, I've got a challenge and a warning and an affirmation. And if anybody has an ear to hear, let him hear. The challenge is that you cannot keep your head in your safe little foxhole when God says, stand up, speak up, and be whoever you're supposed to be. You may be in the wrong, you may be in the right, but you have to have enough courage to say the truth the best you understand it and be true to the truth you know. And if you don't agree with somebody, that's okay. Love them enough to try to show them where you think they're wrong. Do it in a beautiful spirit. That's the challenge. The warning is that if you've been in the habit of practicing self-interest, this is the exact opposite of carrying the cross. Of course, we're all born with a predisposition to it, but most of you listening to me here today have gone into a watery grave somewhere, 
and you've declared you'd die for Jesus if that's what he called you to do. He's calling you, I'm warning you, in the name of Jesus, that Pharisees don't start out as Pharisees. They're made into Pharisees. They were little boys and little girls once with a sincere desire to worship God, but something along the way warped their experience. If you want to be a person of truth, you can hear truth, but it'll cost you. And if you're not willing to pay the price, you can walk the wide road and cross the thresholds of self-destruction. And the final affirmation I want to give you is this. There is no freedom like the freedom in Christ. There is no freedom like being associated with others who share this same spiritual inheritance, freedom in Christ. It's going to cost us something before we make it to the kingdom. The great disadvantage of American Christianity is it has cost nothing for most. The wake-up of the last two years is that whether you believe one thing or another, it's got to cost you something. It's at least going to cost you the strain and the stress of some dialogue and some discomfort. And you might find yourself nudged out, nudged out of your comfort zone. But I'm here to tell you something, friends. Anybody that's of the truth can have an ear to hear what the Spirit says. You may not like something said from this pulpit or said at your table this afternoon. You may not like something your parents say or your teacher or the policeman or your boss or somebody else. But if you're a person of truth, you'll pray, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the past everlasting. And you'll be able in the end to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? We're celebrating today a free country, a beautiful Sabbath, the redemption in Christ. And this morning, I want to tell you, the devil's goals have not changed. He wants to silence the church. It used to be an open persecution. Every martyr, every, every faggot, which was where they burned people at the state, every scaffold where they chopped off heads or hung you in the square, every stock to embarrass and humiliate every Christian that they were left in, every stretcher, the rack, all of things things were tempted to do. One thing, just quit living for Jesus. Just quit talking about Jesus. The devil's going to get to a place where he thinks because of economic pressure and the rejection of friends in society, he's actually going to crush the voice of the church. And he's wrong. In the meantime, we've got little childs and little challenges. We can't live in a cancel culture. You can't shut down conversation because no one person's smart enough to figure it out for themselves, let alone for everybody else. It's a dialogue. When you get to where you can't talk, you're on dangerous ground. When you get to where you have to intimidate or scorn or ridicule, when you get to where you use position to force, you're wrong. When you won't listen out of stubbornness, pride, or insecurity, you're wrong. I invite you to the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. He allowed them to cancel him. And it was a dark journey. But he rose from the grave because the truth can't be conquered. And I'm here to tell you, we're going to see society repeat a lot of its bad habits. And today's the day to practice the good ones of Jesus. The most controversial figure of the Bible and the Gospels is without doubt God himself. Some were on the wrong side who came on to the right side. Some were on the right side who went on to the wrong side. God pursued them all as he's pursuing you and me. And by God's grace and with his presence indwelling in our hearts, we will live free and we will live to hear the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. You hearkened under the commands of your master, Lord and Savior. Amen.